1: And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. spent a number of seasons in Major League Baseball. He started his career with the Cleveland Indians, now the Cleveland Guardians, and then went to the Pittsburgh Pirates for a an amazing run. And he's going to talk about that run and that experience working with the Pittsburgh Pirates. He started there in 2007 and ended his run with the Pirates in 2019. And what's really cool about Kyle is he's pretty vulnerable, open, honest, real, genuine in today's conversation about... Being fired. And in sports, if you work in sports, you know that most teams, most organizations, most people have a shelf life when it comes to the amount of time they work at an organization. So we talk about that in today's conversation. But he had an amazing run with the Pirates. He spent, I believe it was close to 12 years with. The Pittsburgh Pirates, and he became their assistant general manager. He worked as a vice president. He started off in player development as a director. And today's conversation really is about both player development and organizational development. And I think Kyle is uniquely positioned and has had a front row seat to what. A baseball team does to try to create an environment that can help its people thrive. And he was integral in trying to help the Pittsburgh Pirates find ways to thrive while also thinking about the individual. And so this is a conversation about mindset. It's about leadership. And I think mostly it's about culture and how we can create an intentional culture to help our people be the very best that they can be. So I know you're going to love Kyle. So here is Kyle Stark. Kyle, thank you for coming on the podcast. I figured we'd dive right in. Uh, You were referred to me by Steve Shenbaum, who we had on the podcast and was awesome. And I asked Steve, I go, tell me a little bit about Kyle. And he said, you are a great and direct communicator. And this is from the guy who teaches communication, Steve, like his whole world is communication. What is key to being a great communicator?
0: So, I, uh, first of all, Austin awesome Beyond, second, uh, humbled to hear that from someone who lives in that space. I I think the world of Steve, I think he's one of the, you know, and I tell him this, one of the five most talented people I've ever been around. Um, I also laugh because I don't know that he's always thought I was a great communicator. He's probably always thought I've been a direct communicator, Not maybe not always a great communicator, but... Um, But I think, you know, as you dive into that, um, at the end of the day, we're relational human beings that that is about the interaction with each other. And so what is that uh, space that fills that gap? It's communication. And so, um, you know, I think the key to be great, uh, a great communicator is um, one recognizing that communications as much about your heart as opposed to your head, meaning that the, uh, do, what is my attitude and approach to this? Do I recognize that I'm looking for connection probably more so than, you know, formal communication? Um, and And recognizing that, I think the second part which ties into that is recognizing it's ultimately not about the message I'm trying to deliver, and it's about what is the message that's received. So both in terms of being intentional with how I deliver that, but also making sure we've got some checks on learning, some feedback loops to be able to understand what was heard and be able to clean that up. um and then to be ultimately accountable to, you know whatever behavior or reaction we see downrange from from our people. I have to own that, right? I either, you know, uh, a friend of mine, Rod Olson, and I joke around about you either coaching it or allowing it to happen. So if I'm seeing behavior, if, if my team's playing a certain way, if my coaches are coaching a certain way or whatever else, and I see that, then I have to take some ownership of that and, and realize I, I probably need to, to navigate that differently. Um, but ultimately with the goal, uh, I think we can get too clever and cute, and I'd rather be uh, direct and make sure we're clear.
1: What have you learned about being direct? And you said I probably was too direct. What have you learned about being candid or direct that maybe you didn't know 20 years ago?
0: Yeah, I think it's recognizing that other other person, the person on the other side of this uh, communication. I think we can... We can, uh, you know, we, we would would talk often about we can, uh, we need to hold fast to truth. We also need to uh, hold fast to to compassion, kindness, whatever term you want to use in terms of recognizing it, that how that person receives it matters. It's not just about whether I delivered truth. Um, and so I think that's where the, the direct, I, I don't want to use that to uh, be an excuse to not be clear and direct. Um, but I ultimately can't just hide behind the excuse. Well, I was just speaking truth, which I think we've all probably been there at some point. Um, and we need to be reminded unless you're God, it ain't truth, it's your your perspective. And ultimately, how is it received matters.
1: I think about the word authenticity, and that some people that are just jerks will say, Well, I'm just being authentic. This is who I this is who I am. Like, no, you're being a jerk <laughs> and then I think of Radical Candor and Kim Scott's work where she adds empathy to candor and the intersection of empathy and candor sort of speaks to the head and the heart that you're talking about and that dynamic and that relationship. When you were in a leadership position in baseball, I would imagine there's people that are really candid. Like I remember Bruce Poche when he was with the San Francisco Giants, I think was notorious for saying, we're going to play the best players. And it doesn't matter where your contract is. It doesn't matter this. If we think you can help us win, you're in the lineup. If you're struggling, you might be out of the lineup. And I was living in San Francisco at the time when they won their first World Series of a bunch. And I remember watching Pablo Sandoval and Barry Zito at the parade after they won their World Series. And Barry Zito is a former Cy Young, signed to a massive contract. I think he wasn't even on the roster in the World Series. And Pablo Sandoval is this young and up and coming guy that everyone loves. And they benched him for a journeyman. I think it was Juan Uribe uh, who played third base and Sandoval like, came off the bench. And I remember watching that. And I was like, wow, I wonder what they're thinking as they go through this parade. And they know that they're talented and they've had success, but they're not, they didn't really impact this specific world series. And, and I, I don't know what their perspective was, but fast forward two years later, Zito, Pitches like a gem in the World Series. I think Sandoval hits like three home runs and, in a game, and they're both like the crown jewels, and they have a parade again. And so I, I give that story to say, like, the Bochi handed way worked for that culture. And I think he's had success since then as well. And we see other managers or coaching styles that may not go that direction. They may say, no, we're going to give these guys time and we're let them go through struggles and we're playing a long game and we're not playing the person right away. You had a front row seat to different ways of managing or coaching or leading sports teams. What did you watch? What did you witness? What did you learn when it comes to directness or who plays and who doesn't? And where did you come out of those experiences learning and, and thinking about it from a framework standpoint.
0: No, I think it's great. So I think a, a few thoughts come to mind. I think the the first is uh as you talked about well I'm just being authentic, I'm just being me, which is is ultimately a an out to remove. No, we should be trying to be the best version of me. Um you know, we talk a lot of times about know yourself like yourself, be yourself and grow yourself, right? It's trying to be the best version of yourself. Uh, as a leader, ultimately, that it doesn't matter what I do. It matters what my people do. like the the people performing and producing is what that is what how you're measured. And so if I just hide behind, well, that's just me. We've broken the first law of leadership there of it's about your people. Um, so I think that's the that first part. I think the 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 second theme, as you were talking, is at the end of the day, players, which I would then say people in general. They want the truth. They don't, we may not like it. We may not uh, receive it. Well, we may need to process it and whatever else, but we want truth. We crave truth. We want people to be honest with us. Um, because even if I don't like it, I can navigate that. But if there's some falsehoods or, or we're trying to uh, make us feel good about it, there's exposed, we get exposed when we go down that road. Um, and then the last thing I would just say as you're talking about, you know, seeing as I've spent time with, with, uh, you know, thousands of, of athletes and former athletes and have asked best coach you've ever had and why, inevitably, and there's a lot of different things that get said, but the one thing that gets said every time is uh, it comes back to consistency and authenticity. I know, I knew what I was going to get every single day. So that might have been somebody that was more uh, relational and connecting that may have been more taskmaster driving, whatever else, but I, when that person knows who they are, they can consistently be who they are, the athlete, you know, because there's so much uncertainty for an athlete to go perform, if I can remove some of that doubt and uncertainty, whatever else from the leader it allows them to be able to then go uh, pursue peak performance. Um, and so that consistency, which then shows up in how we communicate, right? If I'm, if I know who I am, and I can be consistent. I'm going to, my communication style is going to be more consistent so it can get received more, uh, you know, received better from people.
1: We recently had on the podcast, Doug Lamov and he talked about the idea of a coach's main job is to make others better. A teacher's yep. main job is to make their students better. And he sort of brought this to the forefront as we talked about transactional versus transformational leadership. And he sort of was making the point that it's hard to be transformational if you're not first transactional. And his argument was basically that if you're a coach or teacher or leader and you don't make your people better and they can't see that you're actually helping them improve, you're not going to be able to form this other strong transformational relationship. Before we started recording, you brought up Nick Saban and you, you mentioned that you spent some time with Nick Saban. And we watch guys like Saban and Belichick, and they have a stoicism to them. And um, they talk about process and they talk about detail. And so I think a lot of us watch that and we think, oh, they're more transactional. And look, I've actually worked with players who became NFL players and they said, oh, I don't have Saban's number. And I worked with one player who said, yeah, I got a phone call. You know, I was a first round pick. And it was a number from Alabama and I picked up and it was coach. And so like when we hear those stories, we might think, oh, well, it's a transactional relationship. And when Doug and I started talking, we started to unpack, well, this doesn't have to be binary. It doesn't have to be transactional or transformational. There can be times where it's more transactional and times where it's more transformational. And perhaps those shouldn't be, uh, pitted against each other and instead be more interwoven together. And so when I think about Bochi as we were talking about, or I'll use Saban or I'll use Belichick, we might see the transactional component because they're really focused on how can I make this person better? And then there might be another component that's a little more transformational from a human standpoint. What's your perspective on that uh, based on what you've seen? and no, witnessed?
0: I, I love the question. I think I think we have gotten very, in the age of of Twitter and whatever else, buzzwordy in in our, and we throw out, well, I'm a transformational coach. What does that mean to you? Uh, Because I would argue that if I've made you better, that I'm transforming you. (laughs) And I think a lot of times when we talk about transactional and transformational, we're, we're really talking about probably stylistic preferences on how to get there. Uh, meaning the more relational individual we immediately put in the transformational bucket and the person that's maybe more task oriented, we put in the transactional bucket. Um, I, I think if you look at Nick Saban's track record, you look at whoever, he's obviously transformed a number of of players um, that have, and not just from a skill perspective, but even from just who they are as men. Um so I think, so I think part of that is, are we talking about this the same? I love, we, we make this to be binary. It's not, uh, more, most of our interactions as as human beings are transactional in nature. Like if I, I mean, I joke around, let you reference Steve Shenbaum. We joke around, like if I'm going through the, the drive-through at whatever coffee place and I try to make that a transformational relationship, like that's weird, <laughs> you know, so, I think when, when we really understand the words we're talking about, we're intentional with those and we understand there's different approaches in order to get there. Um, but I, I think too often we hide behind these buzzwords and we haven't really unpacked them and made sense of them and made sense of myself in terms of what it looks like.
1: It's interesting. You mentioned the drive through I was at a conference once and someone had worked with Penn state women's volleyball and they, and Penn state women's volleyball has had tons of success. And they talked about the coach would do like drive through meetings with their players. So they would meet with them once a week for a minute each and they would do one-on-one meetings for a minute. And the player would come in, you get one minute of FaceTime with the head coach and either you can speak your mind as the player, you can ask a question or the head coach can just give you your marching orders. Here's your stuff. And then let's go. And Once again, that might sound harsh or difficult, but A, players always want to meet with the head coach and have face time with the head coach because at the end of the day, they believe and there's some truth to it. That person's going to dictate how much they play. And then B, make them better. And you can make people better with a minute and just give them a gem to send them on their way. And I go back to what Doug had said is like, as a leader, our primary responsibility is to make others better. And by the way, making them better could be, look, you've got some family issues right now that you need to clean up or you've got an alcohol challenge and like you need to take care of that personally. It doesn't have to just be professionally because if the person isn't functioning, how are they going to function as a professional? But I think that concept of making them better that Doug brought up has just like stuck into me. And I think of when you said the drive through, it's like, yeah, that drive-thru through. Someone's in a drive-through at a McDonald's to get their food fast. That's yeah. why they literally did not have the time or the desire or the effort to get out of their car, make the order and, and go on. So what do they want? They want speed. They want it to be right and they want to be nourished. So, and by the way, if you're the car and you're chatting up the person and then there's a bunch of cars behind you that are waiting for their food, you're being selfish now. (laughs) So um, it's interesting when, when you bring up drive through, I want to go back to Saban and then you can add any, any other pieces you want. Because when we, before we started recording, you said he's a system thinker. And you said, a lot of times our, our leaders can't think in systems or or don't think in system, systems and just are sort of more narrow in their focus. And you can zoom out away from Saban and, and you know, share anything else that you've witnessed. Um, from a system standpoint, how do we go about doing that? How do leaders think more in systems than maybe in just the day-to-day execution?
0: Well, I think what's, uh, I, th- I think part of it is, and I've found this, is I think Based on the the scope of what we're leading, sometimes that forces us to be more systems minded, right? So a football coach where you've got 100, 150 players on a roster and you may have 100 support personnel running around, um, it, that kind of forces you to to do it anyways. Um, but I, obviously not all of us go there. I think inevitably it's easy for the leader to focus on the task, right? In fact, we even preach focus on the task at hand, <laughs> Um but I think the best leaders think beyond the task, right? They think longer term. Uh, So if like, I want to win this game. Okay. Can I push my, my lens out further? Can I push, push my vision out further? Um, so as part of that, then I need to then start to think about which ties into the process piece. OK, uh, I understand I'm obsessed with winning. Um, I'm obsessed with results. I then need to de- figure out what can I control, identify that clearly and and uh, make sure that we've got um, that we're doing everything we can to dominate those controllables to increase our chances for winning. Again, vision leads the systems. But process leads to systems. And then I think the other part of it is to start recognizing that the further I get away from me, the more I have to figure out how to systematize some, some things. Now, the trap is we can get bureaucratic and we become uh, obsessed with rules to try to protect us as opposed to non-negotiables that are absolutely critical to success that we want to replicate as consistently as possible to increase our, our chances of success. I think the best leaders are able to do that. Naturally, we're pulled to the task at hand, we're pulled to what's right in front of us and we're pulled to results and outcomes. And the best leaders, and when I say thinking systems, they start to think about vision longer term, they start to think about process, what can I control? And they start to then uh, identify what, um, how do we replicate these things throughout an organization as opposed to what's just right in front of me.
1: I have a random question, I'm just gonna fire it away to be direct. Do you consider yourself to be a baseball guy?
0: No. Well, it's funny. Um, I, I had a lot of people. Uh, well, was, I'll share a journey. So I I've had a lot of people, uh, especially football guys, say, "Hey, you're way more of a football guy than a baseball guy," even though I haven't spent any time in that space. Um, I think part of it is. Uh, when you're responsible for a minor league system you're responsible for lots of players and lots of staff and it forces you to go to there i think my natural pace my natural edge the natural directness probably fits in some other uh arenas better um having not played uh professional baseball um especially when i first transitioned in obsession with the game passion for the game the game i think is, is a um I think it replicates life better than any other sport. Um, And so an appreciation and an obsession with it, but having not played, I wanted to be referred to as a baseball guy and be accepted as a baseball guy. And um, pretty early in my time, I realized every room you're in, there's always somebody who's more of a baseball guy than you. So it's a worthless chase. And that if we're good, you know, if we pursue excellence, we bring some of those things to the table, baseball guys start to respect where that comes from and you start to respect less about what you did and more, uh, your ability to impact spaces. Um, so a personal story and that's why I kind of laughed when you asked that question, um, obsession with the game, the game I think is a beautiful teacher about life and everything else. Um, but I've probably, uh, evolved beyond just being uh, a baseball guy and some people might not consider me a baseball guy. So (laughs) I've, I've let that go too.
1: (laughs) Yeah. How would you describe yourself?
0: I think uh, I, I'm a, at the end of the day, I'm someone who's obsessed with uh, excellence. I'm obsessed with um, trying and, and actually, you know, and and this is, um, you know, a, a hot button topic, especially in sports psychology. I'm actually, I'm obsessed with perfection and moving towards that with the freedom to know I'm never going to get there, but we get glimpses at different points. Um, the best I've ever been around, I think are not afraid of that standard. They're pushing towards that standard, knowing full well, I'm not going to be defined by that standard because that's impossible. Um, and so that's really, you know, how, how I would, uh, you know, see myself and that's meeting people where they're at to try to help them on, on that journey.
1: I love that you brought perfection in, I, you know, I'll send you a copy of my book, but in my book, I talk about in preparation, being perfectionistic and then in performance being adaptable. And to your point, we label things as good or bad, selfish, like bad. I, I did it earlier. I'm like, you're at the end of you're you're blocking up the drive through. You're selfish. In that case, <laughs> in that case, that's bad selfish. Yeah. But there is good selfish, which oh, is yeah. I'm gonna take care of my body when all the other guys are going out. I'm gonna get some sleep. Um, I'm gonna wake up and like Kobe Bryant comes to mind as someone yep. who was just maniacally selfish. But when we're performing, I was watching a lot of NBA basketball last night. Uh, We're recording this on January 23rd. And Joel Embiid had 70 points. And Carl Anthony Towns had 62 points. And I don't know either of those guys. So I'm not speaking from anything. But from an observational standpoint, if anyone wants to, they can go back and watch those two games. And they're fascinating games to watch last night. Because you have these two big men who are scoring at such an amazing clip and dominating the game. And the Sixers won. And the Timberwolves lost. And by the way, the Timberwolves are number one in the West right now as we're recording this. So it's not like they're a bad team. And Carly and the Downs having an amazing year. But watch that game. I'm telling you. Because there is a... uh, uh, The players on Philadelphia wanted to keep feeding Embiid and getting him good looks. And Embiid was making amazing passes that entire game as well. So when it was necessary to pass, he kept making the pass. Towns, he had like 53 at halftime he had 60 at the end of the third and he ended with 62 and with a minute left they took him out for defense and then he wasn't on offense for a possession i'm getting really basketball tactics on this <laughs> but to me underneath all that was excellence which is yeah. you know at, at, to me excellence is I I need to be perfectionistic in preparation, but then adaptable in performance. I need to be selfish in preparation and then selfless in performance. And so Embiid's ability to still be selfless and make the right play at the right time helped them win, A, and B helped make his players want to keep feeding him because they're playing the game the right way. Whereas Towns, I think he was 10 to 15 from three-point land. He was shooting and he was hunting. And by the way, he needs to. And if we're really talking about excellence, I had someone say a definition of greatness years ago, they said greatness is about making others better. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now I see that in basketball. I can see that in sports like soccer. I can see that in sports like football. I want to go back to baseball. I'm not sure about it in baseball. Like I, I, to me, it's an individual sport that has his team components And I I struggle to see it in baseball. And yet we have these mega teams that don't always win in baseball. It's fascinating. And so I want to put your basketball baseball guy hat back on here and explain it to me because you've spent more time in that world than I have. So I'll, I'll see these like mega teams that have all the right players and they don't win at all. And then you see some, you know, smaller market team that just, you know, quote unquote grinds or puts it all together and, and wins. And I'm in Washington DC where we had some super teams and then they traded away their biggest superstar and they won the next year um, or not traded away. They lost them in free agency. So, all right, let's bring it back to you. Um, in a sport like baseball, how is someone excellent? Let's, let's actually go there. I'll just leave it there. Like how, what does excellence in the sport of baseball look like for you?
0: Well, I think, so I'm going to come back to the the comment I made about that. I think baseball captures life better than any other sport. And we can, we can go from there. So I think the first one you've hit on is it's a, it's an individual game. It's an individual uh, component within a team concept life. Like we're not going out into the day, into our, our daily lives, like football, like basketball, where it's obvious 11 on 11 or five on five. That's just not the real world. Real world is I'm going out as an individual <laughs> but reminded that I can't accomplish anything by myself, as you referenced the difference between greatness and excellence. You know, there is a relational component and how I perform, how I interact, um, how I even at that drive-through, even though it's a minute, how I interact with that person can potentially impact that person and awareness of that. So I think there's that component. I think uh, baseball, you know, we talk about baseball as a game of failure. Um, The reality is is in life, we're not Succeeding at everything, um, you know. I, I think the other part of uh, baseball that's fascinating is I can do everything perfect and not have a good result, which is way more like life. Where other sports, if I execute everything perfectly, I'm probably having a success, uh, successful outcome. Uh, so how do I deal with that? How do I deal with process versus results? How do I deal with some of these different things? So I think baseball brings that to life. So as your question about. What is excellence? I think it is the ability to navigate all these things at a really high level and bump up against whatever my perfection is, whatever my uh, greatness is, whatever that uh, top level is, bump up against that as consistently as possible. Because I think that's the other thing too, where um, you know, a lot of times we want to see the Sports Center top ten, and the reality is life's way more about consistency. How are you showing up every day? Are how consistently are you showing up with your best self every day? And ultimately reminding ourselves that I don't care if you have a great season, it, that we are keeping score for a reason. That's why sports exists is for teams to accomplish something together. And so I need to understand what is my role on this team, bringing my best self towards that and committing to that every single day and ultimately influencing the people around me.
1: You mentioned life being about failure and you got fired from Pittsburgh pirates. You were there for a while. So I know you started in Cleveland, I'm sure we could talk about Mark Shapiro who's been on the podcast um and your story I think you wrote 30 GMs and tried to try to get in anywhere you could and found your way in Cleveland and worked your way up and then uh was brought with when Pittsburgh hired a new GM uh he brought you to Pittsburgh um and so you're the assistant GM um we don't need to get into all the dynamics that are at play with the Pittsburgh Pirates we'll let people, use their own imagination there if you follow baseball but I want to go to the failure piece or the fired piece um what transpired after you were fired
0: yeah so um I'll give a little bit of context before you know 12 years which I mean hey 12 years at that level anywhere is just unheard of <laughs> um and, and I like to remind people too because I think it's easy to focus on on the end. Or people just talk about the three uh, playoff appearances. The rat is the last nine years in Pittsburgh, we were top 10 wins in baseball, bottom three in payroll, uh, top three in, in farm system. Um, there was a lot of really good work done for a significant period of time. Um, but I think, you know, I, I had a, a mentor tell me one time he kind of felt like 10 years was that uh, battle room. I think Theo Epstein has said something similar about, hey, 10 years, it's probably time unless you have perfect alignment of your leadership and you are intentionally, um, you know, bringing people along and looking to replicate, um, just but, to
1: jump in on Theo. Cause yeah. I didn't know this until someone brought it up. So he spent 10 years with the Red Sox. And the reason yep. he left, he's like, I think my work here is, is done. I think it's time yep. for someone else to take on. He goes to the Cubs before he gets to Red Sox. They hadn't won the world series. He goes yep. to the other place where they hadn't won a world series, spends 10 years, helps them win a world series and then walks away when both those places he could have been, you know, knighted and, and been a main man and like forever, those, those cities will be grateful. And he's now, I think, working for major league baseball and he's still young. Like he still could go run a team. So, I'd never heard of that until someone brought it up that, yeah, he's he's like 10 years and then it's time to move on. Um, and in the business world, it's hard for people to imagine that because the lifespan in most people's careers is they stay in yep. that place or they leave before 10 years. But that's kind of a space where a lot of people don't. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that back. Um, so yeah, share. go back to you. Sir. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think it is, it's a reminder, I think even in the business space to say, hey, am I continuing to grow? Are we continuing to grow? Um, and have I defined what growth is, which is another topic, but anyway, so, um, so yeah, uh, we, uh, ultimately, um, decide to make a change with the manager, uh, Clint hurdle, who uh, was a huge part of, of, um, of, uh, of us turning things around in Pittsburgh, the president uh, decides to leave Um, new presidents hired. Um, We're coming off of, uh, you know, 2018, we're one of the youngest teams in baseball and have a winning record. 2019, we're in the, uh, in the mix at, at the all-star break. And then we have a horrible second half. And, you know, we've talked about both in terms of performance and some, um, some, yeah, some character makeup issues that, that surfaced that were not good. So new uh, new president comes in, uh, decides to make a change at the general manager spot. And um, I, I laughed because my wife and I looked at each other. Well, actually, I'll share it. So <laughs> I was flying into Pittsburgh and um, uh, Neil Huntington, general manager, said, you know, where are you? I said, I just landed uh, coming in for the week for meetings. And he said, you can probably head home. I just got fired. <laughs> I said, well, I'm gonna come in the office. You know, we'll hang out whatever else. and he he let me know he says, "Hey, you're probably next." And uh, my wife and I joked about that as well. We're like, hey, there's no way if you're if you're changing course, you can't keep one of you know the key guys that um w- whatever role they played, they were a, a part of it. So we spent about six weeks um holding down the fort um as, as Pittsburgh decided to hire a new general manager. And, did um, they yeah, interview did and they
1: interview you during that process. They didn't.
0: Uh, they made the, one of the other assistant GMs as the interim GM. And I, and again, I, that's where you look at it. You know, um, they're choosing a, a different course. Um, but it was a good test for me. Um, again, coming back to the leadership piece, if I if I the natural side is I'm going to focus on myself. Well, <laughs> this doesn't fit. I'm going to start England for job, whatever else say like, no I, we're I'm responsible for you know a few hundred people we we need to make sure that we're continuing to navigate some of this um and uh yeah held down the fort new uh new um GM gets hired um and they they decide to move on from me I'm actually was flying back to, I joke around telling about this story because I think um yeah people will laugh about it. hey what's sports like I'm flying back from the general manager meetings representing the the club out there. Uh, with our contingent. And I get a text from the new president saying, Hey, are you going to be in the office tomorrow? And I said, no, I'm flying home down to Florida. I was planning on being up there next week, but I, you know, I can reroute. And he said, why don't you? So I got home and I told my wife, I said, Hey, I need to fly to Pittsburgh tomorrow to get fired. And, um, she, uh, you know, we laughed or whatever else that morning, we actually, she was taking our youngest to school and I was driving to the airport and I said, Hey, I'll be back for dinner. (laughs) And that's what happened, flew up and uh, was was told, uh, you know, that they were moving on. Um, and and then so but I think that leads up to your question about, OK, what happens next? Um, I think there's first the internal processing of um, which, again, like you we've alluded to a little bit when you sign up for professional sports. I remember telling those closest to me, I said, look, if this goes according to plan, I'm getting fired at some point. Because that means I'm at the the highest levels. And at some point, some you, you either, uh, Brian Billick said, you either can't win enough or you can't uh, make enough people happy. Like one of the, it's either relationships or uh, results. Um, the best, I mean, there's a bunch of Hall of Famers who, who have been. And so you walk in knowing that. You walk in knowing, well, it's a regime change. Well, they're changing everybody out. But I think there's also an element of, um, sure, there's things I could have done differently to try to keep my job. Um, and I've got to own that. And now I may not have done some things differently, but ultimately I do have to own. I could. I mean, in any situation, you can probably keep your job if that's the goal. Um, but it was time, and and I was at peace with that. Partly because uh, my identity wasn't tied to the job. Part of it was because I knew there was. It was time for um, different values and alignment to to take place. Um, and part of it was I knew family wise, I needed to be home. Uh, I had been on the road 20 to 25 days a month for about 12 years. And my wife said to me, she said, can you give me six months? Um, COVID happened, the world shut down. And I started having some people reach out saying, hey, would you spend some time with me and my program or my organization? I said, yeah. And so we've been consulting ever since.
1: (laughs) Can you give me six months? What was your, like, when she says that to you, how does that hit you?
0: Uh, it was good. Um, and she said to me, she said, I need a year, but I know you won't do that. Can you give me six months? Which that squared me up, um, in terms of, okay, what is needed? And, and my wife is unbelievable. Um, you know, there's the, the line about, uh, there's, there's good, rela- good spouses and ex ones. Cause what we ask our spouses to do to, to go through this, um, so she's a saint. And she had never asked something like that. And so it's like, okay, I, I need, she needs me. I need to be home. Um, and, but then the, the, even though my identity is not wrapped up in the job, I had been pursuing something since I was whatever age. And so you, you have to start you know navigating some of those things differently.
1: How much of a dream was it to become a general manager?
0: Well, it was assistant GM, so I didn't uh, quite get there, but it was funny when I realized, I tell people when I realized. Yeah, sorry, uh, just to
1: be clear. Yeah, my point is that, like, how much of a dream was it to become a general
0: manager? Yeah, so that that was the dream. So it was when I realized I wasn't going to play at the highest level, which I joke with, all of us get told that at some point. I just got told way sooner than I probably would have liked. It was, okay, well, I want to be at the pinnacle in uh, professional baseball. So that was, that pursuit was uh, the driving force. It changed in Pittsburgh because of what we were building and how we were building it. And it became less about the career and more about the cause for me. Um, and so, and so I, I think I probably identify more as a change agent as opposed to a sustainer maintainer, but started to look at things a little differently while I was in, in Pittsburgh. Um but yeah, I then had to wrestle with it's the whole, you know, that was the goal. You didn't achieve it. Where are you at? Success, failure. Do you want to keep pursuing it? Um, and I'm not saying that I wouldn't still pursue it, but it'd be for different reasons and it'd have to be different, you know, circumstances.
1: Yeah. And what's it been like for you that six months turned into years? Like what, what's it been like for you as you navigate a world outside of being full time professional baseball?
0: The, um, the, the fun side is you get a chance to be in a lot of different spaces with a lot of different high-speed people. Um, you're only working with people you want to work with um, and, and there's variety and, and and you're able, the principles are the principles. They just look a little different in different scenarios, which I think forces you as a leader to really focus on those things. Um, the challenge is that, you know, baseball provides a ton of structure, like our jobs, our careers, whatever else provide a ton of structure And as a guy who is, um, yeah, probably errs more on the obsession side of preparation and whatever else, um, you realize how much of that you rely on some structure and some tasks to to frame some of those things in. And now you've got to create all of that yourself um, and do it in such a way that, um, you know, the excuse of, well, it's what the job requires that doesn't fly anymore at home. So how are we navigating that personal professional Mm -hmm. thing a little differently?
1: It's interesting because I go back to, are you a baseball guy? And I think about people like Sashi Brown, who, uh, you know, spent time with the Browns, spent time with the wizards, spent time with now he's with the Ravens. I think of Jack Easterby who we had on the podcast who spent time in football, but really loves basketball. And, and, spends a lot of time with basketball people. I think of Bob Myers, who was an agent and then went on to be the general manager of the Golden State Warriors and helped them build a dynasty and just was involved with hiring the Washington Commanders general manager. How important is it for the general manager or president, but president's complicated depending on the sport. Sometimes president means that they're on the business side and less on the operations of the sports side. So let's just focus on general manager. From your perspective, do you need a basketball guy to be the general manager? Do you need a baseball guy to be the general manager, a football guy to be the general manager in that sport? Or do you think that there are skills that go across all of those? So could I take a general manager from football? And, and we saw this, Paul Potest, uh in, you know, was with the money ball stuff in Oakland and then went on to Cleveland. And I would make an argument that if they gave him more time and I don't know him at all, by the way, but like you see patients in sports often stop process. And we saw mm-hmm. it in Philadelphia with Sam Hinkie and the 76ers and he helped build what they're doing today, but you lose enough. It's hard to maintain process. Anyway, the question is more about general manager at that role based on your perspective. Do you need someone who's been in, that world? Or can you bring in an outsider who still has expertise or experience in that role from another sport? And can it apply to, to the said sport?
0: So my, 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 uh, short answer is I do think that the skills are transferable again, coming back to principles, um, the principles of being a great leader show can show up in any, uh, situation again under if i understand those principles and i stay true to those principles the the simplest one meaning am i hiring good people to surround myself and building some alignment uh, around some common goals but then trusting my people to to do the work Because reality is, there are differences. There, there there's some significant differences from sport to sport to sport. Not just from how the it's played, but even in terms of, you know, for example, baseball with the development system, um, you know. So there's some there's some significant differences. Um, But if I get if I understand what it means to be a great leader, then then I then that certainly carries over. It's interesting as you think through that. Sometimes I think our expertise can actually be a trap for us as a leader because it's like, well, I know X, and then I. I end up trying to do X and it's like, no, you hired some other people to do X. And as a leader, I'm jamming things up and gumming things up, things up. I know I've done that before where I'm trying to get into some situations where your expertise may be value add your position in the conversation is not a value add. <laughs> and so in some ways, I think the expertise can actually be a pro- the sports specific expertise can be a challenge for us. So long-winded way of saying, I do think that things are transferable. I think the best coaches, best leaders could go do these things in other environments as well. Um, There'd be a learning curve. There'd be all of that, which I think great, great leaders do that. Um, And then how do you, how do you uh, end up? I think part of it is, is going into a new sport, your contacts you don't have. So it's then, okay, how are we going to then go hire elite people in this space? And we just would probably need to be intentional with where we go to try to find those, those people to surround yourself with.
1: I mentioned Steve Shenbaum earlier. And when I asked him, Hey, what should I ask Kyle about? He mentioned that you have this model that starts with culture, then goes to talent selection, then goes to development and then goes to deployment. Can we unpack that together a little bit and walk me through each of those steps and how you think about them?
0: So you know, I think coming back to what we were talking about earlier, like the buzzword thing, people hide behind buzzwords. And I think we've then cheapened some of these concepts. For example, leadership, like what does that mean? We've cheapened leadership, yet I believe every problem is a leadership problem. So just because we've cheapened it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Culture is one of those, I think, that gets thrown around. I think any uh team that has won will speak favorably to culture. Um, and yet any team that hasn't will dismiss it. <laughs> um and, and and that may be the same team from year to year where it's like, oh, yeah, it was our culture. And then it's like, I don't need culture. I don't even know what to do with it. I think, again, part of it's because we're not being intentional about how we define it. And so like when I talk about culture, I see it as who you are and how you do things. It's more your identity. Um, everybody has a culture. It's just a matter of how intentional you are with it and how, and whether it works for you to bring the best out of people or not. Um, so like the people that dismiss culture, it's like, well, you're dismissing your existence of who you are. You have one, It's just a matter of how you decide to tackle it and and intentionally work towards it. So that model then becomes, okay. So if it, if first have we defined it, but then second, have I made sense of it so I can think in systems and try to replicate it? And so those kind of four steps is the first one is, have I defined who we are and who we want to be? Do I have alignment? Do I have clarity of our identity? Do I have clarity of what matters and and uh, what we're going to prioritize? Because um, that's going to then inform everything else. So then from there, you then go to talent selection. We've got to go identify
1: who hey Kyle, fits. Before yeah. you go to talent selection, let's stay on culture for a minute and then we'll go to talent yep. selection. I have a framework that I use where I say values are who you are. Your mission is why you do what you do. Your philosophy is how you do it. And your vision is what you will do. And Mm -hmm. so when I work with clients, we go through that exercise for themselves. And then if they own their business, sometimes we talk about, all right, let's do this for your business. And when I hear you talk, I hear you really emphasizing the who, which are the values and the philosophy as far as how we want to operate. And to your point, a lot of people are not intentional with who they are and how they operate doesn't mean they don't have a culture. They just don't have an intentional culture and in defining who they are and how they operate. And by the way, just because someone doesn't fully align with your values doesn't mean they still can't add value to your organization. So I think sometimes we'll say like, all right, we've got these five values and this person, this is the piece. We're not really sure that's who they are well, if they've got the other four and the order of the values matters. So if they have the primary, our first value and our second value, like we can get a lot of really good stuff done and be aligned because the order of the values will often drive uh, how aligned we are. So just things for people that are listening to think about. I think sometimes we talk about culture and it's this, to your point a a buzzword, but it's even this unknown. It's this ocean. yeah, it means nothing. But if you boil it down to intention around who we are, why we do what we do, how we do it, what we will do, I think you can start to really... You know, take a magnifying glass underneath it and and try to really figure it out. So that's that's how i'm
0: I think about well, it. and I just I love it because again, and and, you know, we'll break it down to even add a couple other elements in terms of even identifying, hey, our strengths, like what what are we going to be known for? What are the strengths we're going to leverage? Um, you know, how are we defining a win? Have we defined what success looks like? The, the cool thing for me is you break that down and you've identified, I think it was those four pieces. um what I've realized is when when leaders try to, um, well, you, ha- you know, Simon Sinek, start with why. Look, I think that is a great anchor for a lot of people. I also know some really successful people around that that's not their anchor. It is more their values. I've been around some people like, I just can't grasp the abstractness of values, but you know what, I really can gravitate around the this. Uh, These are the strengths we're gonna leverage, whatever it is. I think the the key is, am I looking at this in terms of, hey, here's the key component parts, find out where do you have clarity and conviction? Because I think, as you talked about, I think too often we go through this exercise. Here's my five values. Yeah, well, when it comes down, when pressure hits, do you really believe that? I would rather you, come up with three values. That I may disagree with, but those are what you believe because those are going to consistently show up throughout everything you do and drive who you are. Otherwise it's a wish list or a one-off conversation or an exercise. And I've choked with people. I said, I don't have interest in wasting time. I don't want to go through these things. If you don't really believe them, have conviction in, in, in them and have them drive, you know, the rest of the process.
1: Well, and there's even more to this, which is for an organization, especially let's talk about sports for a minute. In a world where people get fired all the time, look to your point earlier, I'm going to use the Detroit Lions as an example. They, with Dan Campbell, and I forget their general manager's name, but they were in alignment with what they wanted to do. They had a philosophy. They talk about grit, talk about a buzzword. Uh, They talk about grit all the time. And if you watch their drafts, they often get criticized for taking players too early or this position shouldn't be that and I just watched a speech he gave the team. He's like, all of you are in this room for a reason. We identified you. And there's even something beautiful about, oh, you were supposed to go there. No, we knew that you aligned with what we want to do. And that's why you're in this room. And so often we we put talent selection over culture. We put the talent over the culture. And uh, you see it happen all the time. And it really can backfire because then you don't know who you are. And yeah. the Lions know exactly who they are. This was an intentional build. And then this is the piece I really want to hammer home is ownership. Uh yep. the owner of the Lions, when Dan Campbell, I mean their first year they were awful. I think they started zero and 10. Uh and I forget what they finished, but it was bottom of the barrel, right? Uh and then year and then last year, people forget, last year they were one and five. And she, the owner, had to come out and do a press conference basically saying that they believe in the she believes in the process she believes in the plan she believes in leadership i know this is hard i know losing sucks um and by the way if anyone watched hard knocks with the lions you could see all this come out and play and i had a head coach text me are you watching hard knocks and he's a basketball coach and i yeah it's fascinating i don't know if they'll be able to survive with how they're going about it he's like yeah i hope they do because what they're trying to do is very specific and intentional and and you watch philosophically the way they do it Hey, they took the ball first instead of deferring uh in a game like you're not really supposed to do that, but they have a philosophy. they believe yep. in who they are and to your point, they're convicted and they're clear. But ownership, I want to just point this out, she, the owner at a one and five team, the team that sucked the year before, said, I believe in it. I think they had the second pick in the draft the year before. and they went on to go nine and eight last year, right? And then this year, they finish with a great record. So, yep. since that one in five mark where the owner comes out and says, "I believe in what we're doing and gets criticized like all hell by the city and by the media, that team has gone twenty two and eight and is a win away from the Super Bowl.
0: yeah,
1: and I bring that up because people are listening to this, and if you're the CEO or you're the leader or you're somebody in a position of power, your ability to influence yep. uh, an organization is massive and and we don't often understand that when the owner pulls the rug out underneath that and changes direction, it resets everything and you have to completely rebuild it. And she deserves a ton of credit for staying the course at a time where everybody said you're nuts and you need to get rid of this guy. So I, I just think it's a real life example that we can watch and observe and witness and see like the lions have a clear culture, a clear identity and they may not win and they may get blown out by the San Francisco 49ers but where they are today is in part due to putting culture first.
0: Well, and I think that's where that, that alignment piece, we have to build alignment, right. And that's with everybody uh, that your point on ownership is awesome. I, I had somebody share with me one time, uh, you know, 30 owners in a professional sport, 32 owners in a professional sport doesn't mean 30 or 32 elite leaders. It means 30 or 32 rich people <laughs> who have had success in their space and um, It's part of the reason why you look at Cleveland and the track record. Cleveland has had Cleveland uh, Indians, Guardians. Um, And and if you talk with those guys, they'll talk about the Dolans. Now, the fans might be frustrated because of what they spend. But if you look at those, you know, why is why are some of those leaders not looking to leave Cleveland? Because they know it's a great ownership group and they start prioritizing. I'd rather have support, commitment and alignment over some additional resources. Um, And and so, yeah, it, it reinforces that all the time.
1: I asked a GM once, "What lead, What do you want from your owner?" And they said resources. And this GM was a survivalist yeah. and would do whatever it took to keep his job. Yeah, he he doesn't have a job anymore, and <laughs> and it was just such a non-strategic answer.
0: Yeah,
1: it it was our point earlier about systems and strategy versus execution that guy was just thinking of how can we win games so that i can keep my job and he wouldn't have yep. said that but it was the truth and that's why yeah. he did he was able yeah. to by the way in the game of yeah. sports like <laughs> it is cutthroat like survivalists yeah. got to survive and, yeah. and nothing against them but like it it goes to show how different like i i talked to that person and then i asked another gm what they're looking for. And it was completely different. And um, I think Campbell with the lions even said, I want our owner to actually meddle more. He -hmm. was like, I want her to be even more engaged because the reality is if your owner is far away and distant, it's really easy to fire. It's really easy to (laughs) hate. It's really easy to have stories when we're not up close and in proximity. Yeah. And so uh, like Mark Cuban with the Dallas Mavericks, like Cuban, whatever you think of him, he's in the weeds with them. You know, Rick Carlisle was there forever. Donnie Nelson was there forever. And then it was time to, to move on. But because he was in it, he could see the logic of what they were doing. So we can have a whole conversation, but let's get to talent selection sure, because sure. while we are talking about Culture, we both know if you don't have the horses, if you don't have the talent, none of it matters. And, and yeah. like, so as we talk about all this stuff, like, if you don't have great high performers uh, on the coaching staff and the front office and on the team, nothing matters. So tell me about how you think about talent selection.
0: Yeah. So I think that's where, if I've got alignment of who we are and who we want to be, how we want to do things now, I start to select for it. Right. And I think this is where you can see that first kind of disconnect happens where it's like, here's our five values. Well, okay. We just took a player that's not in alignment with any of that. The other thing I will, will challenge sometimes is and I love your point in terms of, uh, some disconnect on somewhere in the values. My challenge to us always is less is more. We got to continue to refine. I think a lot of times when we come up with our values or we come up with what we're looking for in a job, it's more of a wish list as opposed to, you no, know, at the end of the day, these are non negotiables. I'm not going to bend on this. I was facilitating a conversation one time, a bunch of, of uh, high speed leaders and coaches across industries. We were having this conversation on talent selection. They came up with their list of the non-negotiables. Talent wasn't anywhere on there. And there was an NBA coach in the room who said, um, hey, I'm just curious where talent fits in this. And the whole room went, oh, well, yeah, you got to have talent. And it's like, well, then all these other things are wishless. It's like a waste of time. Like these are things we'd kind of like to have. So I think this is that, that that ability for us to not only um come to grips with where the where do we fit on this topic but also have I really clearly defined talent and for me what I've realized again coming back to this that success is a matter of consistency that means how consistent that talent shows up matters and so as we talk about all the other things that we value those are not uh, nice additions. Those are mission critical things that we have to have in order for talent to show up the way we need to. And I think something you referenced earlier in terms of which I really love the idea of perfection, in our preparation, and adaptable in our in our performance piece, at the end of the day, we are trying to find um, adaptable, flexible um, problem solvers uh, from our athletes and from our from our coaches and leaders as well. And so, am I selecting for that for that skill? Am I then cultivating and developing that skill? Um, but this talent selection piece of really clearly defining what are we looking for and making sure that it lines up with what we ultimately want um, is absolutely critical. Then from there, I then need to come up with a process on how I do it because uh, it, it's funny we we uh, I always joke around about. There's been one player drafted one one who's in the hall of fame in baseball really one. Now I, no I way. think we took uh Garrett Cole one, one, you know, I think Garrett's trending that way. So there might be some more down the road, but when you start looking at this, the game history tells us we're not good at this, uh, pro this process of selection, talent identification and selection. So we need to then look at our processes and come up with a process. Again, we're, we're dealing in the world of gray and the messiness of human beings but can I come up with a process that will increase my chances to get what I want?
1: Yeah, because I I don't follow baseball as closely as some other sports, but I'm in DC and we had back-to-back years where they had Strasburg and Bryce Harper. Price is going to be a hall of famer. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Stras. I mean, I, you know it better than I do. I mean, had some like legendary performances. Body is broken down. Unfortunately, um, You know, the talent there, everything's there, Uh, the body. And so I don't know where he falls on Hall of Fame and how baseball thinks about Hall of Fame. Have have teams gotten better at 1-1 over the years? For
0: sure. I think teams have gotten better. Um, I think we've gotten better. I think the uh, amateur space, I think there's a lot of things that have have led us to be better. But the point is, even if there's going to be five at the end of the day, we just have to remind ourselves we're not good at this. (laughs) So let's humble ourselves. Cause I've been, and I've been that guy to be like, no, this guy's going to be great. No, I mean, it's your opinion. (laughs) Um, The reality is that there's a lot of stuff under the hood, both physically and then mentally that we don't know. And so can I, can I, do I have some processes to better assess those things and identify those things? Um, but the reality is, do I have clarity of what I'm looking for, and then do I have a consistent process so I can execute to increase our chances?
1: uh it's so it's so true. Like I had an NBA draft website for a few years, and I watched so much film, so much film, and I'd be up at night just watching film on guys. I was so wrong i was <laughs> I was unbelievably wrong to the point where I was just at a, a NBA game and I saw one of my friends, and this guy. I, Like, I was hoping I could make my website disappear forever because I was like, (laughs) I might be working with some of these athletes. I don't want them to see what I think of them. Um, And he, like, pulled it up. I was like, how could you find that? And he knows how to do that in the the Internet's Forever type deal. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm so... I hate that this thing still exists. Um, I love doing it in the moment, but if you've ever tried, like all these people are experts. Let's use the NBA and the NFL because people watch college and they think like, Oh, this guy's going to be good. I I challenge anybody over the next three years. I want you to put a list together and I want you to rank your top guys. And you tell me how it ends up. And And it is, it is such an imperfect science and everyone's an expert until they write it down. And by the way, the sports teams, if you don't have your front office writing it down, there's a lot of revisionist history and a lot of claims (laughs) that were not there on draft night. Like there are, there are a lot of people that are like, I told you we should have done it. I'm like, no, no, no. I remember I was sitting in the room (laughs) and that wasn't it. Um, so that's one. And then two, like I've been involved in the interview process for a lot of these teams. And I will Mm -hmm. also say a guy can interview amazing and not be good enough. And a guy that can bomb his interview can be a hell of a player. And so like I always said to the people, when I would interview players, I'd like, this is a bucket. You should have 12 other buckets that you're looking at. And like, they may have a great interview and just not, figure it out. Um, that's a reality. And, and then of course there's due diligence. You mentioned character earlier, I think on the 2018 team, like it's really hard to predict future character. Um, of course I had Pablo Tori on the podcast and he's obsessed with the S two assessment. I think it's called yep. in the NFL and yep. they're getting crushed right now because CJ Stroud bombed his assessment. So like my point is when we think about, you know, finding talent, we have to go really broad, put it into buckets. And then I love what you said is and then not believe in ourselves. And and so yeah, we're gonna pick them, but at least the next point is like our big key is we're gonna pick the best we can. We're gonna do a lot of invest a lot of resources in trying to find talent, but the development piece is often not invested nearly as much as the talent finding piece. You guys have scouts all over. You're paying for their flights, their hotels, their their rental cars. I mean, there is a huge investment to talent development. And I once had a GM tell me that he would rather spend more money on actually scouting pros that already exist than he would on the draft. And this was in the NBA. And he said, look, in the NBA, I can see NBA versus NBA player, and I can better evaluate what that person's capable of at this level than I can from college or high school or internationally, where the game's a completely different animal. And I thought that was an interesting uh, note, too, but that's on the evaluation piece. Take us to development. What are the keys to developing
0: talent? Yeah. So I I think the first is recognizing that they're connected, right? The selection and development space, too often we look up and we're like, good draft, bad draft. I don't know. We'll find out. Good hire, bad hire. I don't know. We'll find out. I'm always amazed when an organization hires a a head coach or a manager and uh, a year later, they're like, oh, we're frustrated with X. It's like, you knew X. You didn't surround them with the right people. You didn't put the right processes in place to be able to leverage their strengths. So the the interplay between selection and, and development is absolutely critical. We used to joke around about, you know, in baseball, there, there's always been a tension between scouting and development. You know, scouts will always say, he could play when I put him on the on the plane. And, they, and the coaches are going, what are you sending us? And so we wanted to get to who drafted him, we did. Who developed him, we did that it's, it is us. So if we have a successful draft, it's because scouting and development worked well together. If we don't, then we've got to look back at both of those. We failed, um, you know, on both sides of that. So I think when you start talking development, the first piece is, do I prioritize it? Which a lot of organizations do not they it's more on the selection side, which we can get into, you know, fixed versus growth mindset and how we look at talent. Um, So do I value it? Is it aligned with the selection side? And then do I understand some principles Of development, and some of those principles can include: Are we leveraging strengths? Because too often we focus on on weaknesses. It can focus on it can focus on: Am I focused on more training and education, or am I and not to minimize training and education? But we ultimately have to focus on, on uh, experience and, and uh, failure and how have we created um, an environment where people can explore and experience and try, have some good mentors walk alongside and give some feedback to help them make sense of what they did, um, but not just think because I've informed you that information doesn't lead to transformation. We've got to provide some space in there for people to explore and experience and fail. Um and, and then to be able to understand that connection between development and performance, development and execution, because um, we can have a great... Uh, in theory development space if it's not transferring out on the field when it matters or same thing with our coaches if we're not seeing changed behavior then we've got to reflect on on what we're doing there so and again we could dive into any of those topics but this connection between selection and development being intentional prioritizing it understanding uh, how it works and being able to make sure we've created an environment where people can grow and get better
1: it's interesting they're in pro sports, they call it the big four. So the big four sports are hockey, basketball, American football, and baseball. That might change over the next 10, 15, 20 years, but but let's just use those four. Baseball is often seen as the most archaic or slowest or non-adaptable traditional sport. And I've always been fascinated by this. And yet, analytics, birthed in baseball, and sports psychology birthed in baseball far more than those other sports. They have been progressive when it comes to analytics and they've been progressive when it comes to mental performance. And there's probably others that other things that I don't even know about. And, and it's fascinating because I think there's this forcing function that exists in baseball where you have a minor league system and you have all this talent. And so there is an opportunity to develop that talent. If that talent hits, you control their rights from a financial standpoint, and you can really build a great team. And so there have been these forcing functions when it comes to mental performance and investing in it, because if we can get them psychologically sound, it can unlock their potential in a really beautiful way. And then the analytics, probably you would have a better sense of it than me, but the the close-ended nature of the sport, the plug and play nature, like we were talking about earlier, um, really sets it up for it for analytics to be birthed there, developed there. And now, of course, we see it in, in all these different sports. Um, what it, what's your perspective on why has baseball been, in some ways, most traditional, in some ways, the most progressive when it comes to um, evolving?
0: I think there is an element of, um, you know, um, David Cook, famous sports psychologist, talks about truth over tradition. Right. And it's not that tradition doesn't matter, but we're pursuing truth, meaning we're not going to just do things the way we have because that's the way we've done it. Right. And so I think baseball has had some themes of this throughout, even though it's got the greatest tradition. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be the most archaic. I think the fascinating thing about baseball, again, coming back to where it represents life better than any of the other sports. Like there's guys that have spent 50 years in the game that are still trying to figure it out. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen in other sports. But I think there's things that just man,' I it's just hitting the baseball is the hardest thing to do in the world. So I don't know. we're gonna keep exploring this. So I think there's a curiosity that's bred in there. I think the other thing that's been interesting with baseball because of the vast number of people involved, because of your minor league system, because of the number of scouts, it's probably led to some different creative thinkers in some different spaces. And whether you go back to branch Ricky back in the day, um, you go back to um, there's been different peer points in time where, um, you know, there, just by nature, there's somebody that's a little bit different, creative thinker that's not afraid to try something, and it and it shows out. Especially in the minor leagues, if I try something in the big leagues, there's huge consequences of that. In the minor leagues, not as much. So there's probably a safer place to be able to try something. Um, I had uh, I was having a conversation with one guy one time. He had spent some time in prof- in professional sports, and he was with a hedge fund. Uh, now. And he said the thing he realized, you know, when you go into professional sports, you're thinking this is the best of the best of the best. And it is from a talent uh, of a player perspective, but it's not necessarily from a coaching leadership perspective because there's huge consequences to failure. And so people coming back to your example, the guy who's trying to keep a job as opposed to do the job, it's like the consequence to me getting fired for me personally is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, (laughs) I want to keep my job, which means I'm not going to risk where in baseball, you're talking about a, a coach making 30 grand back in the day. He's like, I'll try this. And I'm understaffed. I, all I have is a trainer, I got to figure some things out. So I think that has led into it. The last thing I would say with baseball is I think as more um, because of the analytics, which baseball's always been obsessed with numbers that has led to more uh, uh, economists finance type perspectives coming into the game. That have forced some conversations differently. And and so I think it's led to a lot of really cool uh, exploration.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. I heard Raul Ibanez, and I forget the other guy at the MLB who is responsible for the pitch clock that they instituted. Uh, I can't remember his name, but I heard them speak at a conference and they talked about the power of the minor leagues and that the MLB really uses the minor leagues to experiment. And they're doing all this stuff now, uh, including like, you know, the robot. Uh, strike zone and um, so experimentation tinkering leads to innovation Uh, and I think about Amy Edmondson who we had the good fortune of interviewing on the podcast who has studied psychological safety and found that if you create a psychological safe environment and allow for people to not just fail, but to raise their hand and said, oh, I did that. Let's learn and figure out what we can do differently. Then that's where innovation can really be birthed. And to your point, like I'm thinking of the NFL on the other end of the spectrum where there is no minor leagues and they it's harder for them to innovate in. I look at the NFL and I look at like the first down chain marker, and it is bonkers to me. Like I, it, it drives me insane that in 2024, where they have a drone flying over the over the field to get good video shots, that we have these people holding a chain to determine the first line, and we don't have a tracker in the football that determines whether or not the football hit the line to gain. I, it just is. Anyway,
0: I'll get off. Well, I think I think football is a great example too because where do you see the innovation there? It's more strategy, more on the tactical side, right? So it's like there's a very clear lane to run in for exploration there, which I think that's the thing with baseball. That it's wide open. Like we don't have strategies. You're not running offense and defense, whatever else. So that it's a wider range for people to explore and, and innovate and try. Where in football, it's like... Um, here's a clear opportunity. And so that's where a ton of focus and energy gets devoted and maybe not in some other spaces.
1: Awesome. Let's finish with deployment and then we'll, we'll, we'll sort yep. of call it. So uh, at the end of the day, you're playing a game. It's time to actually go and execute. Tell us about how you think about deployment.
0: Yeah. I think this is where ultimately this is about, okay, we've, we've, I, uh, we we know who we are. We've identified who's coming in. We're focused on getting them better. We have to go out there and execute now, right? And so this is ultimately, I, when I think about execution, I think uh, and deployment. I'm thinking about um, we're we keep score for a reason, right? Like the results matter. I, when whenever I spend time with people, like, well, I'm all about the process, and it's like why. It's the people that are all that are really obsessed with process because they're obsessed with results like that's what and so we're not afraid of that truth. We're not afraid to be informed by what our results are. And so it's have I created an environment where we're able to navigate some different tensions? The the compete and the cooperate piece, right? The the ability to go out and challenge, but also uh have each other's back and, and do the team aspect of it. Um, the short-term, long-term piece of this in terms of playing for right now and, and capitalizing on the task in front of us, but it's towards something else. It's uh it's understanding, you know, do I have a play that allows us? to go out and perform at a really high level and then keep improving off of that. Um, you know, we would talk about from a process standpoint, I think of it in terms of prepare, execute, review, and that's a continuous loop, right? Dominate, uh, the controllable so that I can be my best when my best is needed go out and com- and commit to the task at hand and execution, and then review and make sense of what we went through so we can come back and do it again tomorrow. So the execution, the deployment piece is ultimately about as a leader, have I created an environment where people are freed up to go uh, perform at their highest level in the context of a team setting? Am I able to navigate all the, 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 the nuance of the collective, um, and then to be able to learn from those things so we can keep getting better. And that's where that execution ties to the the development piece. Again, these are all connected um, in, in a good culture.
1: It's a great way for us to close. What are you executing on now? Give us a sense of your company and the consulting that you do. And if people want to get connected with you, how can they best do that?
0: Yeah. So, um, Simple thing I explain is I'm working with leaders and coaches, uh, that, that want to drive great cultures. So, uh, it's a world, it's in the mix of sport, military business, um, high speed people, high speed environments, um, that are wanting to continue to explore this and try to, uh, you know, that aren't afraid of that, that standard of perfection, excellence, wherever people want to go with that. Um, and so then meeting those people where they're at, and that can be from a going and spending, um, You know, a limited time with their group, um, more of a coaching relationship with their environment going in more full scale of, Hey, here's some evaluation and providing actually some consulting solutions for things. So it depends on the leader, depends on the coach where they're at. Um, but that's partnering up with, with people who want to drive great cultures, um, and uh, I'm horrible at, at social media and online presence. I do have a website coming at some point. <laughs> you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, beyond that, I joked with Brian. You can ping Brian and he can, uh, I've got no problems giving out my contact information and talking to whoever. I just have not, I'm not a social media guy. So, um, but anytime that people want to explore this and try to figure this out and unpack this, uh, yeah, I'm game for um, for wrestling with it together or providing some uh, perspective The the cool thing for me is I've been actually be in the trenches doing it. So it's not necessarily a theoretical thing. And I've been around some really successful people to provide some different ways uh, to skin the cat, if you will.
1: People are welcome to email me, brian at strongskills.co, and I can (laughs) connect you with Kyle. Uh, You can also follow me at Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn at Brian Levinson as well. Uh, Happy to connect you with Kyle. Uh, If you want to listen to any of these conversations, we had Clint Hurdle on the podcast as we talked about, you know, there was a a question I had in there of like, Oh wait, so you were there firing Clint and now you two are together and spend a lot of time together and close. So there's something interesting there about what happens when you have to fire someone that's a friend and how do you maintain a relationship with them even after you you might fire them? Um, So that's maybe another conversation for another day. Um, (laughs) But we mentioned a lot of different podcasts Uh, that people that I've interviewed on the podcast thus far. So go over to strongskills.co slash podcast and you can list all of those conversations. Kyle, man, this was, this was a joy. This was a blast and uh, excited to continue to follow your journey and get to know you better. And I know there's plenty more that we could have unpacked and discovered together. So uh, hopefully our paths continue to be woven together in the future. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: No, I appreciate it. It's been a blast. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. You know, in baseball, there there's always been a tension between scouting and development. You know, scouts will always say, he could play when I put him on the on the plane, and the and the coaches are going, What are you sending us? And so we wanted to get to who drafted him, we did. Who developed him, we did. That it's it is us. So if we have a successful draft, it's because scouting and development worked well together.